Hello, I'm Guy Garvey and welcome to a Yesterday podcast special. In terms of cultural impact, you'd be hard-pressed to find two more important filmmakers. Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis between them have written and directed such movie touchstones as Trainspotting, Bridget Jones's Diary, The Beach, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Sunshine, Notting Hill and 28 Days Later. And now in their first formal collaboration, they've made Yesterday. We got them together to talk not only about the film, but about each other's work, their filmmaking process, the music of the Beatles, and yes, the influence of Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp's Gagan press and tactic on Danny's direction. We began by asking them about each other's work. Hello, I'm Danny Boyle, I'm the director of Yesterday. Hello, I'm Richard Curtis and I'm the writer of the film Yesterday. I've never seen any of Danny's films. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had the my reputation only. I mean, to start with, train spotting. I always saw train spotting just as the Northern Four Weddings. That was feeling a, a closely knit community of idiosyncratic characters. <laughs> and in Four Weddings, we were dealing with weddings, and in train spotting, you were dealing with heroin. Actually, shallow grave, because I remember being with David Orkin, who used to run Film Four, and we'd made Shallow Grave. It was our first chance at the big time. And we'd made it for like a million quid. And he used to come in and watch the cuts and give us notes on the cuts. And he was off to, and it must have been Toronto or Sundance. 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 Yeah, so, he was, yeah. so he was off to Sundance. And he had this film. And I said, what are your hopes, David? You know, I was trying to chat with him. It was slightly awkward. And he was, I said, what are your hopes? And he said, I've got this great film. Back taking this, this great film called Late Night Shopping. <laughs> and, and he said, I think it's going to go. I think it's going to really... Do it. I don't think it was backbeat. I think that was the year right. before. And then I remember the next time he came, after he'd come back from Sundance, he said, Four weddings and a funeral, massive. <laughs> so it had surprised everyone. Well, because um... I remember seeing it. I remember seeing it in, in uh, Elephant and Castle, Four weddings and a funeral. And I didn't know you, I'd never met you, or I knew a little bit about you. But I remember going to watch this film on a Saturday night in Elephant and Castle. I think they knocked it down that cinema now. And it was packed. People were having such a good time. I felt it once before with the British film, Full Monty. I remember feeling yeah. that with Full Monty. When you can feel the people kind of look at themselves and go, yeah, this is us. <laughs> For tonight, this is us. Yeah. And they love it like that. I love that. Well, I must admit, <clears throat> in, a, in a recent screening we had of yesterday in Wimbledon, we'd seen it in Los Angeles, hadn't we? And yeah. then we saw it here. And there were some scenes where I felt that yeah. British identification. I, don't, I think maybe they let it be scene you could feel that but there were yeah. bits where they it, were clearly enjoying it more because we had got yeah. the right cultural and the oasis reference comes there you can feel yeah. people go oh i can see what's coming yeah here. and the stony silence <laughs> in, in america um <clears throat> well look let me think of the ones that i think really like affected this decision that's a sort of tricky thing to think about because the yeah. thing is i just love the all the things I think I was not as a director, so many of the things that you've got, which is flair, excitement, idiosyncrasy, and everything like that. And I'm very disappointed by my own directing style. <laughs> so the idea that you could actually make 127 hours, whereas I would have, you know, <laughs> I can't even begin to think, let's do a wide shot, a close, <laughs> and a two shot. Um, so the luxury of having a conversation with you and thinking, what would it be like if those skills could be applied? And then I think particularly when we started to think, what happens if they could be applied to a bit with music in it? Yeah. 
And yet, underneath, through all the films like Millions, 127 Hours, Slumdog and everything like that, I also had that complete confidence in your love of an interesting character. Because, of course, that's sometimes the thing you yeah. play. So if you see someone who's made a great action movie or a great superhero movie, you think, yeah, but if they transferred themselves to me, there'd be nothing left of the tender bits that I care about. So I thought that um, it might just be a perfect double bubble. <laughs> For me, I was like, I, so I saw Four Weddings and a Funeral in Elephant Castle. So we, we made two films that were, did quite well, Shallow Grave and Trainspotting. And Trainspotting had quite a big hit and we got a lot of attention and they said, well, what are we gonna do now? And blah, 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 blah. And they said, well, and we said, we're gonna go and make a romantic comedy. And so we made this film, a film I'm very proud of, called The Life Less Ordinary in Utah with a wonderful pairing of Ewan McGregor and Cameron Diaz. Two of the world's most beautiful people. Oh my God, and it was a complete flop. But leaving that aside, because we hadn't got there yet, we just finished filming it. I came home and we finished filming it, it was Christmas and I came home and we went on the holiday at Christmas and it was snowing. We were in, on this little cottage in Norfolk and it was a bit of a break for the kids and stuff like that. <clears throat> and I remember reading Notting Hill and it was, yeah. And I read it like that, and my eyes opened in horror as I read it. And I read it, and I thought, that's what a romantic comedy is. <laughs> I don't know what we've made <laughs> the last four months in Utah, but it's not that. I thought, that's a romantic comedy. And it was true as well. Because I, I learned a lot from Making a Life Less Ordinary about the amount of interference you do in something that's actually, you're presenting a love affair to people and you mustn't manipulate it. The amount of manipulation you do, which I, I like to do, you have to reduce that and limit that or be more cunning with it or more hidden with it or whatever. People have to believe they're seeing something without any kind of yeah. uh, filter through which they're seeing it. They're seeing these people on. Or you get into style. Yeah. And that's one of the things which is a worry, I think, about some romantic comedies, that it's high style. He's absolutely ghastly in this way. She's absolutely ghastly in that <laughs> way. In that way, a, an incident occurs, and then you're meant to think they'll fall in love with each other. Yeah. But I do think that there's, you know, tenderness required. Do they have any favourites? Well, oh, that's very tricky. I'm going to say, no, you go first. Oh, I'm yeah. Think. Wow. Well, I hope it's going to be good. I did No, I've, before I mentioned the films, you've got to talk about Blackadder, really. So I remember saying to you that all your films are about time and love, or love over time. But leaving the love bit out of it, because we're talking about Blackadder, <laughs> it's about time, really, and how immortal they are. Because me and my son, the only other thing we watch all the time is Faulty Towers, you know, on, on Rewind. And you just... Even worse sets. <laughs> You don't care about sets. <laughs> They're shaking even and more it's just, than ours. And I said about, and I, have, I haven't said it to you in person, though I've said it, in, I said it in a letter, is that I kind of regard you as a poet laureate of romance and comedy, which I think is absolutely true. And because romance and comedy are not valued in the way that poetry is, we don't have a poet laureate of that. But if we did, you'd, you'd be besieged, Richard, with offers to accept the post. Because I remember when you said you didn't want to direct this and said you, you were looking for a director. I said, well, what's wrong? Because I, I, I watched About Time, I'd liked About Time. I said, why do you think that's not well-directed? It's perfectly well-directed. I think it's very nice. And it, I remember saying that to you. 
Um, though that wouldn't be the one I would pick. I think I would probably pick, oh yeah, I'd pr I'm afraid I'd probably pick the one you probably don't want me to pick, which is Four Weddings and a Funeral, really. I think just because of that night in Elephant and Castle. It was a kind of, because we- I was just so afraid you were going to say Mr. B. <laughs> I was so afraid you were going to say, that's the only one I would have minded. <laughs> no, Four yeah. Weddings and a Funeral, just watching it in front of people, that's the other thing about movies is that, you forget because you get so kind of, if you've had a few successes, you get so trapped in a kind of the echo chamber of everybody saying how good you are and things like that. And it, and it does affect people. You can't help but be affected by it. But the, when you get a, 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 a piece of storytelling in front of an audience, it is amazing. And I, I remember that night in The Elephant and Castle. Well, I'm going to say Slumdog for reasons that don't relate to our project, really. Or in a way they do. I mean, I think one of the triumphs of Slumdog is the fact that your memory of it is to do with exuberance and love and hope. Yeah, actually, when you watch it again, it's quite a dark yeah, it is, and yeah. violent film. Early on, especially. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that, you know, if I would think about that, I would say Danny could put more truth into my films, perhaps, than sometimes they've had, and yet will still emerge with the feeling of sort of ecstasy and hope that I like to come out of them. I mean, I particularly love Slumdog because of the whole comic relief part of my life, that we make films that try and make people appreciate and see and understand the texture of some of the hardest you know, lives and hardest places to live. And I think it was a, a miracle of empathy and observation. You know, so in some ways I wish Instead of asking you to do this film, I'd asked you to do all the appeals for Comic Relief <laughs> this year. You would have probably been paid about the same amount. <laughs> but there we go. So had they considered working with each other before? Well, obviously, we sent you Notting Hill. I can't remember why I read it. I can't remember well, why we I read it. we were looking for a director because Mike had decided not to do it. And so... Oh, you must have been... I think we might have... And I remember thinking, I, I, I just was like, whoa, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able, I, I thought I wouldn't be able to do that. Not now. I think I would be now. I think, think I've learned a lot about the way you do, you know, the way you approach things. Because I'm very script driven, because I grew up at the Royal Court Theatre, which gives you this thing about writers. So I like writers and I like being involved with writers and having them around and stuff like that. So I have that respect for the script, even though you're kind of trying to be a bit cavalier with it at times in the hope that you'll embellish it somehow. You know, so I, I would make a better job now, but I remember at the time thinking, oops, <laughs> what have we done? We actually met on, we might have met before, but I think we met on the Olympics where yes, I did, did that little thing with Rowan and you shot the little parody of Chariots of Fire and that went pretty well. Yeah. Two billion people laughed at. Absolutely. Rowan Atkinson. over or something like that. And I remember you saying about what Rowan would be like in the edit, that he would just... And no, I remember you saying what he would be like on the shoot. He just want, I remember you saying he'll just want to shoot forever. Yeah. Forever. He will yeah. never stop. And he'll be very unhappy. Don't expect laughter. Yes, he won't. He'll, be, he'll look like he's miserable, but he will. But then, of course, we hadn't counted for the fact that he would have to, every take, because he was running, he'd have to run every take. Yeah. So he wasn't as keen. His legs oh, went okay, dead. After you. about 15 That's takes, the, the legs went dead. So we were spared that. But he was amazing in the edit. I remember him looking for that frame. One frame makes it funnier. If you stay on yeah, my yeah. face one frame longer, or one frame less, it'll, it'll be funnier if you do that or like that, like that. But that was lovely, the Olympics thing. It was a beautiful yeah. thing, wasn't it? And then it was very lucky timing. I don't know, we talked about something. I can't remember where, what it was. 
probably comic relief or something. And you dropped me a note, I think, and said, if ever you've got anything, do send it. And I literally had finished this one. Am I not right? And so I just sent it. Yes, you did. It wasn't that I made up, it wasn't that I reviewed all the directors in the world mm. and said, I think Danny Boyle's right. It seemed like a dream scenario. It's like getting a phone call from Juliet Binoche one night. She just says, are you free? And you're not going to say, well, I, I might have a phone call from Kate Blanchett as well. So I think I just sent it. And then we went through that very interesting initial process where you asked if you could come and audition for the film. Yes which was a curious way of looking at it. I learned that off, this is terrible name dropping, but I learned that off Leonardo DiCaprio, who said that he always, so when we set, set up the beach, he wanted to audition for it. He, you know, even though he's yeah. the biggest star in the world, he'd just done Titanic, he could do anything that he wanted, but he wanted to actually read the part in front of you and say, am I right for it, like that, he wanted to do like that and I was really respected that I thought you should because you you have a certain amount if you've survived in the business you have a certain amount of technical skill but like you say you might be the wrong person for it because I remember writing to you didn't we talk about why you hadn't ever written anything for the stage other than the sketches and stuff right, like that yeah. and weren't you going to do a play for the national about old people it wasn't that because I decided I wrote the first half 15 years ago and I never finished it and have you been back to it um, I go back to it once every. Maybe I'll write it when I'm old. <laughs> it wouldn't have been anyway. For some reason or other, it came about, and then you came in and said, "As it were, this is the performance I'll give." <laughs> this is what you'll get. Director, this, this is, is what you'll, you'll get, get. I'm afraid. And I remember going home with Emma, and you were very keen to do it with Emma, who we knew were involved because it was the it was at the script stage. And I remember you leaving the house and us sort of doing the maths and saying, "He wants us to change." 25% of the film, or 23 pages anyway. And then I went and did it, and there was exactly 23 or 25 pages. I mean, I can't remember what they were oh, now, dear. but shorter, beginning, different end, bit in the middle, not, and everything like that. As well as you saying what were the sort of five complicated directing thoughts you'd had. What they were, I can't remember what they were. I was thinking, I was trying to think as you said that. Whether I, I just so remember you talking such a lot about Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> Wasn't it? Oh, Gagan Preston. Gagan Preston. Yeah, yeah. Danny, yeah. crushing a moment like that as much that's as possible right. to squeeze as much out of it as possible. So yeah, before I right. did this, I'd been doing this television series about the Gettys, and even before that, they'd done the train spotting sequel, and with those train spotting guys, they were very actor based. Even though train spotting's got a lot of style in it, the, the essence of it was actually very actor based, and you begin to put people in shots. So you begin to think about, I begin to, and I hope I developed it well enough with Anthony Dodd-Mantle and then with this guy Chris Ross, this cinematographer who did the the Getty thing and this one on our film, that you put people in shot and you try and never have singles. I know that's a very crude way of saying it, and there are singles in the film, but you try and, because there's something about, if you can pull it off, there's something about people trust they're not being manipulated because they're seeing that natural interaction between actors. And I always remember, I mean, because you're taught this really as a director, aren't you? If you're going to do comedy, just park the camera and let the actor, you know, Rowan Atkinson, just park it and let him do it because he'll do it. And if you can find the perfect moment to cut within it as well, which is again his thing about the one frame, that frame, you won't even know you've cut. You'll just think you're watching the actor like that. So I was coming at it from that direction. I was looking to develop that more. And I love doing that about it, which makes the casting 
crucial because you're handing the control of it of the yeah. swathes of the rhythm of the film over to the three actors in that shot or the four actors in that group shot and things like that, which I love doing. And we were very lucky to find, ironically, the son of the director of Notting Hill for one of them, Harry, you know, Harry Michelle and Sophia and then and obviously Joel and Himesh and Lily. I mean, because the casting you, thing is, is huge for me. That would have been, I mean, that would have been interesting if it hadn't been your way of working. Because again, Mike said to me, when a movie's cast, that's basically three quarters of the job done because you've got the performance, you've got the tone, you've got the texture. And yet, you know, my friend Paul Greengrass never auditions. He yeah. just picks a guy who he's liked in something and thinks is right for the part and says, it's you. And I would have found that. Hard, and in fact, even though we won't say his name, you had an instinct for another actor who you thought was going to be right. Yeah. When you auditioned him, you didn't think he yeah. was right. And that would have been tough for both of us if you'd just said, no, that's my way, I'll, I'll go for him. Yeah. And yet the casting was really consensual, wasn't it? And, you know, as complicated as always. And so I think that meant that when it got round to shooting, we were both very comfortable. Yeah. The, because we weren't fighting any piece of, any misunderstanding about what a character was meant to do and how they're meant to feel about it. I know, I think you've got to hear the scene. I mean, that's the way I cast and it comes from theatre. I think you've got to hear the scenes. And in fact, Leo DiCaprio was also was basically saying the same, you've got to hear the scene, you've got to, because there's not, a, a really good actor knows there's not that much they're going to do. They have a way of approaching it. There might be occasions when they do something extraordinary because of an idea that comes from outside them, but usually the ideas are inside them and it's connected with a piece of writing and then you need to connect it with someone who's going to record it. I do think that one of the things, as I say, it almost happened by chance. We'd met or talked about something. You said if you've got anything, you said yes and everything like that. If I'd had the opportunity to think it through more carefully, I still might have asked you to do it because this movie was gonna have an hour of music in it. Yeah. And I do think that that requires a remarkable director, a, an actual person who can who think loves. about the fact that you're gonna have 10 moments that are could be dangerously the same, and you've gotta find variety, texture, originality, Yeah. In it, and I think, you know, I'm, I the yesterday, which is in a way the simplest of the songs, but actually when you look at that edit, the fact you've chosen to go to a man and a dog and a river, and a window, and cut that in with the most simple shooting of that is a really bold decision for that song, and I think that you know that was great. And yet you also weren't making pop videos. You yes, know, you yeah. were making truthful versions of each song, but they were super well made. It's basically a folk song. So you wanted to show a little bit of England at certain points of it because it's one of the greatest folk songs and will live forever, that song, you know? So how would Danny and Richard pitch the film? Well, we've been through a real surprise, haven't we? Yes, Which we have, is yeah. that <clears throat> both the trailer and the mm. film itself, the concept has burst through better than we even could have. Yes. I mean, you yeah. felt that? Yes. And I was trying to think why that was, because... So the concept is obviously the Beatles disappearing and being uh, reborn through this failed singer-songwriter from Suffolk. I was trying to think, could you do it with any other band? It's the fact that they are present in not just people's lives in Britain, but people's lives everywhere in the world. Somehow those songs are in everyone, really. 
And it's that that helps the concept be all present. Yeah, really. people would be heartbroken if, you know, the Stones or Pink Floyd or David Bowie weren't there any longer. But it, might, it wouldn't have the feeling that it would hit the kids as, as well. As I've told you, almost my most important moment in my relationship with the Beatles was when I went to see my six-year-olds play about the Battle of Hastings. And it ended with Harold holding William the Conqueror's hands and then singing, we can work it out. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's how far the Beatles have got. Across <clears throat> all generations, absolutely. It's a really easy description, isn't it? We just say, uh, there's an unsuccessful singer-songwriter and he wakes up in the morning and finds out that he's the only person who can remember the music of the Beatles and then all those things ensue. But then, then it's interesting how we get it back as to whether or not it's a musical film or a romantic film or a film about fame. And I think we're going to hope that you get a bit of the advantages of that. I would not call it a romantic comedy, even though it has its used as part of that framework. But don't you feel a bit odd if people say it's a romantic comedy or are you comfy with that? I'm quite comfy having failed to make one. <laughs> <laughs> so successfully. You're gonna, I'm quite happy gonna, if they do yeah, that. So that's a very short <laughs> column. You're going to put it in your romantic comedy column, whereas I'm going to put it in my uh, musical sociological <laughs> column where I need a bit more... But it is the but it content. is a, it is a love story, and it's obviously it's obviously a love letter to the Beatles on all our behalfs. I mean, not yeah. just me and you, everybody involved in the film, really, which again shows how ever-present they are in people's lives, I think. That pride people have in that music, that ownership they have of the music. If it was taken away from them, they'd want to know, where's it gone? And in fact, that was one of the, that's a lot of the questions we've had, isn't it? It's, which is that, well, I enjoyed the film, but you never explained how come the Beatles music disappeared. I mean, I know, I, I, we know, don't we? I mean, or at least I've got a, uh, you know, I've got a theory, <laughs> as it were. But it is interesting what you don't need to know movies. In Four Weddings, there were some people who said, what jobs did they do, how did they meet? Yeah. They're a very odd miscellany. And we actually shot a scene in the back of a cab where Andy McDowell said, so how did you meet Simon Cowell's character? How did you meet Michelle's Oh, right, explaining how everything. All that, and then you found out you didn't need it, yeah. rather than better. I mean, I think the thing that I'm most happy about, I always feel very nervous about these discussions because people are like confidently talking about a film which then turns out to be a total failure. Yes. Exactly. But in the few screenings that we've had, and yes. the fact that we have managed, and I put a lot of this credit to you, but managed for the movie to love the Beatles so much is a lovely thing for both of us. Because as it were, we wouldn't have made it if it weren't for your affection of the Beatles. And we were born within eight weeks of each yeah, other. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That was the same yeah. experience. And the idea that you've somehow managed, without even playing the real songs, to s express all that affection and that sort of shock of their extraordinary body of work, that I'm, I feel so grateful to you and that for the four groups of people who've seen it so far, it's yes. had that effect. It's had that effect on them. Yeah. Yes, let's hope. And the film features a certain Ed Sheeran. In a way, the movie's about it, isn't it? weird kind of like x-ray version of the film is Ed's story, yeah. which is a unsuccessful singer-songwriter from Suffolk, is catapulted to stratospheric fame and fortune and attention and success and talent. Yeah. So, you know, it is odd because we had some lovely times up in Suffolk. It was so lovely to be able to set the film where, you know, Emma was raised and where I spend all the holidays. 
And then I think, you know, we knew we wanted a famous person. And the obvious person was Ed, because he comes from Suffolk, <laughs> and I know him. So he came round for dinner. I had no idea who you were then, Googled you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Christ. Yes. Um, I remember him saying, did he do the beach? I swear I could lip read. He did the beach. I remember him um, And then that was, I mean, that was interesting, isn't it? Because actually, I think it gives a beautiful performance and you were always confident you could get one, weren't you? Yeah, I remember saying to him, you've got to come to rehearsal. And he was keen to do rehearsal. He wanted to do rehearsal. And I thought that's a really good sign because he wants to kind of hang around the other actors and see what the process is and find out he should be serious about certain things. But you did, it gave him a really interesting note, I thought, which was, it's more about listening than speaking. Because I'm sure that in the parts that he'd done before, people had said, this is your line, and he'd agonise the night before and say, to say my it. lord, shall I take my sword and <laughs> cut off thy head? Or something like that. And you said, actually, if you listen to the other actor, you'll probably want to reply with the line that you've got. And yeah. I think that kind of also meant me didn't feel like a dog in a show. Yeah, yeah, that was nice. That, yeah. And I think also we were lucky because I think he, he got on quite well with the, his peer group, if you like, who were Lily and Himesh and Joel. He kind of got on with them, really. And it's quite, I think he must be, as a solo artist, he must miss the band sometimes. And I think there must have been a bit of that, that when, yeah. he, was, when he was there for rehearsals. And I remember Himesh playing something for him and him saying oh it's quite good him and then Joel played of course Joel who's a fantastic musician I remember Ed going whoa he's really good like that yeah no, no. and it was it was sweet and he also didn't mind which was the advantage of him being a friend there wasn't a sort of sticky problem with the level of piss take that we yeah. my favorite line in the movie is when she says what have you done to hey Jude and he says bloody Ed Sheeran <laughs> Um, and you think, <laughs> I can't apologise. Yeah, bloody Ed Sheeran. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> no. So that's. But oddly enough, I mean, it's an odd thing putting a current famous person in a film as themselves, and I think it's quite typical of you that you don't mind taking that risk because that's not a. It's not. It can go wrong. I'm sure we could think of ten things where yes, you I kind know. of got yes. a famous person in a movie and it feels as though it doesn't fit. But I think perhaps the reason it does fit is because of the Suffolkness. It's the Suffolk, it. and and, yeah. and also Himesh like grew up in Cambridge, which is not that far away, and kind of it feels it felt honest really yeah. that they would get on and come from a kind of similar world really. So the reason we cast him wasn't because of the amount of money saved by being able to film him in concert <laughs> rather than hiring fifty thousand extras in Wembley Stadium. And that's it for part one. Head over to part two where you can hear Danny and Richard talk about the themes of the film, its realism, how they first began their relationships with the band and what a world without the Beatles would be like. Plus they talk about their favourite Beatles songs.